Father, thanks for this word. We've read it. We've prayed over it. We've sung, not directly this passage, but we've sung about truths that correspond to this passage. And now we need to hear it. Would you transform us by this word? Change us. Give us delight in this word that leads us to delight in you. That leads us to dissatisfaction with this world. That leads us to transform lives. Oh, Father, you have redeemed us and saved us so that we might be like our Savior. Might you use this word in our lives this morning so that you set us on a trajectory this week to walk with Christ, to emulate him, to look like him. And not just this week, but far beyond this week. This is an opportunity for Life change, would you give us the life change we need by this word, we pray in the name of Christ, amen. I know some of y'all like to go hunting and camping and hiking, but serious hiking is not for everyone. Several years ago, the staff at the Bridger Wilderness in the Tetons released some of the comments that people had made after they had concluded their various hikes. Here are a few samples. Trails need to be wider so that people can walk holding hands. Trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. Too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spider webs. Please spray the wilderness to rid the area of these pests. The coyotes made too much noise last night and kept me awake. Please eradicate these annoying animals. Please pave the trails so that they can be plowed of snow during the winter. Chairlifts need to be in some places so that we can get to the wonderful views without having to hike to them. In a similar vein, escalators on steep uphill sections would be helpful. (laughs) I love this one. The places where trails do not exist are not well marked. (laughs) True. There are too many rocks in the mountains. A small deer came into my camp and stole my jar of pickles. Is there any way I can get reimbursed? (laughs) A McDonald's would be nice at the trailhead. Like I said, not everybody's cut out for the hiking and camping life. I think it is safe to say that in general, we do not endure hardship well as a people. That's not only true in the wilderness, that's also true in all of life. And our lives are troubled, as Steve Hoppe has noted. Our world isn't paradise. He says our jobs are stressful, taxing, and unfulfilling. Our relationships are quarrelsome. We get cancer. We break bones, throw up, and get hemorrhoids. We feel nervous, afraid, angry, and upset. The Holocaust happens. 9-11 happens. Poverty, genocide, and starvation happen. Terrorists set off bombs. Our cars hit potholes. Books are ridiculously difficult to write. We go years without speaking to relatives. Divorce splits families. Hurricanes, tsunamis, and earthquakes destroy the planet. Love fades. World peace is a cliched impossibility. We get wrinkles, zits, sunspots, and bald spots. We rarely smile. We rarely laugh. We rarely let loose and play. Our minds fail us. Our hearts ache. We constantly itch for more. Eventually, we die. The world as we know it is anything but paradise. End quote. As believers in Christ, we are aware that even in this troubled world, God is behind all of our troubles. At times, He designs the difficulties of life so that we will loosen our attachment to this world and strengthen our attachment to Him. He wants us to learn the provisions of the world are weak and incapable. And he wants us to learn that his provisions are strong 
and satisfying. And he gives us trouble to learn to cling to him in his strength. He teaches us those realities in our circumstances. And he teaches us the realities of the weakness of the world and his power in the word as well. This morning we return to Psalm 119. We have been at Psalm 119 for about 10 years now. Twice a year, in the middle of the year and the first of the year, we take a look at one of the successive stanzas in that psalm. And we are nearing the end. A year and a half from now, we'll be finished with Psalm 119. Three stanzas left after today. In these verses before us this morning, verses 145 to 152, it is clear that the psalmist is suffering. But the the kind of suffering is never articulated. It's never really clearly stated. It's just that he is enduring hardship and he is enduring hardship at the hand of some who are opposed to him. They stand against him. In fact, we might say that the suffering of the psalmist is generic. It can be applied to any kind of trouble that we endure in this world. What is stated while his Exact problem is not stated. What is stated is what he does when suffering. He runs to the Lord. He runs to the Lord in prayer and he yearns for his word. Every January I preach a set of sermons on some of the basics of the spiritual life, some of the disciplines, if you will. We always talk at least about scripture and prayer. And there's a sense in which this passage this morning, while oriented towards the scriptures, can really identify with both of those realities, prayer and scripture. The psalmist affirms his allegiance to God, his word, and he affirms that through particular kinds of prayers. He will say what he says in this stanza this way, when suffering intentionally draw near to God, in word and prayer, when suffering intentionally draw near to God in word and prayer. One commentator finds two dominant themes in this stanza, and he labels it after James 4, 8. Draw near to God. That's the first four verses, 145 to 148. And he will draw near to you, verses 149 to 152. That's helpful. And I want to Build off that outline and expand it a little bit more and help you to see five responses when suffering and sorrowing. Five responses for those who are suffering and sorrowing. What do we do when our hearts go to God in lament? What do we do when we face difficulty? What do we do when life gets hard and people are opposed to us? Five responses. When suffering and sorrowing. The first one is given in verses 145 and 146. It's the psalmist's petition in sorrow. The psalmist's petition. He's praying in sorrow. And he is praying particularly that he might be obedient to the word. I mentioned that prayer is a significant component to this stanza. The first line in 145 makes that clear. Notice he says, I cried with all of my heart. But it's not just that line that gives us this, but we also find it in 146. I cried to you. And then he gives the content of his particular cry. Save me. Verse 147. I rise before dawn and I cry for help. Verse 147 also, the end of the verse. I I wait for your words. Verse 149. Hear my voice. Over and over, he says, I'm crying to you, I'm coming to you, I'm calling on you, I'm petitioning you, I'm praying to you. When sorrowing and suffering, the psalmist goes to God in prayer. The psalmist goes to the Lord in lament. He affirms, there's only one way out of this, Lord. I need your help. Verse 145, when he says, I cried, the form of that word indicates that this is not something new that he has done. This is a regular pattern of his life. This is something that he habitually does. This is, this is not something he's doing for the first time. This is, this is the end of a long habit 
in his life. He prays when he is hurting as he was praying, as he was writing this stanza. But that prayer of lament is natural because he always prays. Prayer is second nature to him. And the words that he prays and the affirmations that he makes in his prayer notice come with all my heart. By that, he simply means this is not simply lip service to God. He's not giving the Sunday school answer. Okay, I know I need to pray. I'm having trouble now. I need to go to God. That, that's not what's going on here. This is a genuine longing of the heart. He has trouble. Where else will he go but to God? This is, this is his genuine longing. He's not complaining. When he says, I'm crying to the Lord, he's not, he's not saying, woe is me. But he is simply saying, I'm calling out to you. I'm dependent on you. I am longing for you. I am seeking your help. Can we just affirm that when we have trouble and when we have trials and when we are praying, that we should be genuine and authentic with, before the Lord? And just acknowledge, I've got a problem here. I don't have the world by its tail. I, I'm not in control. I'm not sovereign. I'm in need. I've, I am dependent. We don't come to God with platitudes. We come to Him with genuine dependence upon Him. So one commentator says, prayer should be earnest and wholehearted. Notice with that prayer for help, He also affirms his commitment to the Lord. End of that verse, 145. I will observe your statutes. The word statutes refers to the binding commands of God and Scripture. They are God's unchanging truth. And he says, I will observe those requirements, those duties, those obligations, those commands. I will observe them. I will comply with God, with what God says. Now, He is not saying, God help me, and if you help me, I'll start obeying. Okay, so that's usually the prayer from the foxhole, right? God, get me out of this, and I'm all yours for the first time. No, 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 that's not what the psalmist is saying. This has been his pattern. He regularly goes to God. He is regularly dependent on God. He's not saying, I will start obeying you. He is is saying, while I wait for you to answer, I will continue to observe your statutes. I'm all in, God. I have trouble. I have trial. I have pressure coming on me. We're going to see in a few minutes that this this is pressure from particular people that are coming against him. And the temptation might be to flee away from God and give up on God. And he's he's saying, I'm not doing that. I'm all in. I'm crying to you, I'm dependent on you, I'm coming to you, and I will continue being faithful to you while I wait for you to answer. He does not promise to obey in order to get something from God. He goes to God in prayer because his desire is always to obey. Let me just ask a question. When we are reticent to pray, when we are slow to pray, Is it because we aren't inclined to obey? Notice the connection. He's praying. In his hardship, he is drawn to God. And in his hardship, he is is drawn to obedience. And when we are disinclined to pray, is it because we are not only not wanting to obey in prayer, but we're not wanting to obey in other areas of our lives as well? Is it because we aren't faithful to God's commands in other places that we aren't faithful to his command to obey? Psalm 146 parallels 145. Notice he says, I cried to you, but he doesn't just say, I cried to you. That's the same root verb in 146 as in 145. He doesn't just lament again that he needs help. He does do that. But now he also includes a request. Save me. He doesn't detail all of his problems. 
He doesn't explain everything that's going on in his life. He understands that God understands his particular need. He just utters his basic need. I can't do anything to extract myself from this situation. I am dependent on you. If I'm going to make it out of this, you're going to be the one that draws me out. Help me. Again, one commentator is helpful when he says earnest prayer is often pithy rather than prolonged, vital rather than verbose. Simple prayers get directly to the heart of the matter. Save me. Just ask him. Save me. Help me. Guide me. Direct me. Protect me. And then, as in the first verse that we looked at, he again affirms his commitment to obedience. I cried to you. Save me. And I shall keep all of your testimonies. Again, he's not... He's not making a a promise, I'll start to obey. But he is affirming that this is always what he does. These testimonies that he refers to in this verse are the legal documents, the legal decrees of God. They're a reference in part to the law of God. They demand obedience. And the psalmist says, I will keep them. I, I am committed to obeying. I am committed to following God's declarations. This this is a familiar affirmation from this psalmist. 21 times in this psalm, he uses this word to say, I will keep, I will obey, I will do what you say. Verse 88, just a couple of examples. Revive me according to your loving kindness. A similar theme as to what he's asking here. Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. I, I want to obey the things that you have obliged me to do. 101. I've restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I, I want to avoid evil so that I can follow you in obedience. 134. Redeem me from the oppression of man that I may keep your precepts. Keep me from outward constraints that might move me away from dis- move me away from obedience and And facilitate my obedience of you in all things. He's also grieved over those who are disobedient. 136. My eyes shed streams of water because they, his enemies, the oppressors, because they do not keep your law. Again, he's not making a bargain with God. He's already been obedient to God. We're going to see that in the next verses The sense is that if God saves him from his trial, he simply will be freed to obey God and continue in in that obedience. He wants to commit the continue in the trajectory in which he is headed. So the psalmist is suffering and he's praying. Notice a couple of attributes about these two prayers that we've seen, or these prayers prayers that we've seen in these two verses. One. He is quick to go to the Lord. When he has trouble, he doesn't hesitate, but he runs to the Lord. He affirms his dependence on the Lord. His suffering has driven him to God in prayerful dependence. Suffering will often entice people to run away from God. Life is hard. God must not care. I quit. I give up on the God thing. I'm done. Life gets hard. Worship goes out the window. Life gets hard. Scripture goes away. Life gets hard. Prayer is given up. Not the psalmist. Life gets hard. And he runs to the one who will keep him. His suffering and the prayer of the psalmist are a reminder of the benefits of difficulties and trials. Listen to what Tony Ranke writes in his very helpful book, Newton on the Christian Life. Mindless and habitual prayers are never less suited than when the circumstances of our lives crumble around us. Trials breathe new desperation, new life into our prayers. Suffering pours new language into our longings. Newton writes... Experience testifies that a long course of ease and prosperity without painful changes 
has an unhappy tendency to make us cold and formal in our secret worship. And so Renke concludes, easy lives weaken our communion with God. When you have trouble, run to Him and His Word. A second thing I want you to notice about his praying is that he laments and grieves over his trouble. But the prayer is never, get me out of this trouble because I hate it and I don't like suffering. That, that's the way we tend to pray, isn't it? Okay, that's the way I tend to pray. God, I've got sniffles, I've got a cold, and it's really an inconvenience. Will you make it go away? I don't, I don't like having a cold. I don't like having a head cold. God, I don't like having a, I don't like having a car where not everything works all the time. It's such hardship. It's not the psalmist prayer. The psalmist prays, will you give me relief so I'm freed and able to continue obeying? Because whatever else happens, I just want you. I want to follow you. I want to demonstrate you to a dying world. Do we see our troubles as prayer opportunities? Do we pray for God to enable us to remain faithful to Him in our troubles? You see, more than getting out of our troubles, we need faithfulness to God. The psalmist practice, excuse me, the psalmist petition in sorrow is to pray for obedience to the Word. The second reality I want you to notice here is the psalmist practice in sorrow, which is meditation on the word. What, the, what does the psalmist do? What does he practice when he is sorrowing and grieving? He practices meditation on the word. Verses 147 and 148, I rise before the dawn and I cry for help. I rise before the dawn. Remember back in those days, the alarm clock that might be used is the rising of the sun. Sun's up, time to get up. Sun's up, time to get on with life and get the day rolling. But before the sun triggered the get up signal for the psalmist, he's already awake, alert, active. And what's he doing? He's praying and he's meditating. Again, we, we don't know exactly what triggered this Get up time, but it's probably safe to assume there's a sense of urgency in his heart, perhaps even a sense of anxiety. I don't say that on the basis of the text. I do say that on the basis of life. Who among you? Well, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'll raise my hand. Who has ever woken up early because of some anxiousness that was weighing on you? Sure. And that urgency that's triggering this sense of I need help compels him to get up and go to God. I rise before the dawn. I get up early so that I can be intentional in crying out to God for help. And I cry out and I say, I need help. This cry for help is common among God's people. We regularly cry out and say, I need help. But often when we cry out, it's a, it's a, almost a, an accusation against God. I need help and I just don't really think that you care. We, we find a, a sense of that in Habakkuk 1-2. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry to you violence and yet you do not save. You hear that lament? God doesn't care. How much longer? How long, O oh Lord? How long? How long? And yet the psalmist reminds us in other places, for instance, in Psalm 72, that God is a prayer hearing God. He does care. He is compassionate to our needs. Psalm 72, 12, He will deliver the needy when He cries for help. The afflicted also and him who has no helper, he will deliver. You cry for help, 
He will deliver. It may not come in your timing. It may not come in your way. It may not come according to your plan, your decree. But he will help in just the way that we need it. And before he does anything, before he acts, the psalmist petitions God. And then notice also in this verse 147, I wait for your words. When he says words, He's using the broadest word for Scripture. This is God's truth in any form. He is patiently waiting for instruction from all of Scripture. That's what that word wait means. It's patient waiting. It's it's confident hopefulness that God will do what He says He will do. He trusts the Word, the psalmist does, so he goes to the Word. And he goes to the word, not just in the good times, not just in the happy times. He goes to the word, particularly when he's troubled. I'm waiting. I'm listening. I'm heeding. I'm paying attention to your word. So. Is this the part of the sermon where I would say, "Okay, gang, follow the pattern of the psalmist. He gets up before the crack of dawn. He gets up. I don't know. 4.30, 5.00, 5.30, 4.30, 5.30, 6, and he's in the book. And he's reading and meditating and praying. And we need to follow that. We need to get up early in the day and read the scriptures. Is this the part where I say that? Yes. But also, notice the next verse. My eyes anticipate the night watches. Now remember, he's suffering. And the trouble is... Likely coming from people who want to do him harm. Verse 150, we'll see this shortly. Those who follow after wickedness draw near. So, so people are coming in. They're encircling him. They've got him caged in. And they're moving ever closer to oppress him. And so when he says, my eyes anticipate the night watches. It's clear that, that he's in relational trouble. He's suffering And he's looking forward to the night. I'll just be honest. That sounds pretty foreign to me. When I'm in relational trouble, when I'm in anxiety, when I'm fearful, on that rare occasion when Regine and I had conflict one time, like at 10 o'clock at night, you can laugh, it's okay. It happened more than once. And I crawl into bed and we're not fully resolved yet. I just know I'm going to lay there. Isn't that your experience? I don't anticipate the night watches. I'm thinking, oh man, here we go. It's going to be a long night. It's going to be a short night. A long night awake. A short night asleep. I'm not looking forward to it. The psalmist has a different anticipation. He says, my eyes anticipate the night watches. He is looking forward to the night so that he can be undistracted in his worship of God. So that he can be undistracted in his meditation on the Word. And notice that this is This is a habitual pattern. He says, my eyes anticipate the night watches. I don't think he's thinking about multiple night watches in one night. I think he's thinking about multiple night watches over a course of days and weeks and months and years. That this is this is habitually what he does at night. He meditates the end of 148. He meditates on your word. That word, word, is a word that might be translated promises. And so he's saying, I can't wait for nighttime when I'm suffering so I can meditate on and remind myself of your promises and your faithfulness and your goodness. And isn't that what typically flees in the middle of the night? God doesn't know what what to do and so I'm going to have to stay up all night long planning and strategizing how to manipulate the circumstances so I get out of it okay because God can't do this now we don't say it quite that way but that's what's going on 
And the psalmist isn't in any of that. The psalmist is saying, I'm being intentional to meditate on his word. Can I just give you, this is not in the text, but can I give you maybe just a practice that might be helpful? When you're going to bed at night and you're recognizing I have six things weighing on my mind and I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm under pressure and I'm burdened and it's weighty. And I, I think that if I continue on the trajectory of thinking that I'm, I'm going to be stuck with a long night. Can I just give you a suggestion? Whether it's an actual Bible or the Bible app on your phone, you open up something and you read on something that will draw your heart to meditate on God's promises. And I'll, I'll do that at times. I'll just, I'll grab one verse because when I'm falling asleep, I don't have capacity to memorize 12 verses. I just need one. I need one verse and one promise and one glorious truth about God. And I fall asleep thinking on that verse. And at 2 a.m., when I wake back up, What typically is running through my mind in that moment when I first wake is that verse. Now, it's 2 a.m. and I don't remember it. So I'll sometimes pull my phone back out and refresh my memory. And I'll go, oh, yeah, that's why I picked that verse. And it calms my heart and I fall back asleep meditating on the promises and the goodness of God. That's the kind of thing that the psalmist is talking about here. Meditate, think about, dwell on. It's interesting, in fact, that the word meditate here has a a sense of meditating with thanks and praise. So it's pushing out anxiety. It's pushing out worry and fear and replacing it with praise and gratitude of a God who is faithful. Here's the point of these verses. The psalmist took every opportunity to pray, whether in the quiet before dawn at the beginning of the day or in the silent hours of the night before he slept. He's always praying all through the day and all through the night. He's orienting his heart and his desires to the Lord. He's living in troubling days. He himself is suffering to the point of being sorrowful. When we, when we read the statements like, I cried, I, I cried with all my heart. I cried, do you save me? We hear pain and sorrow and lament. And his antidote to sorrow and lament is scripture and prayer. The basics of the spiritual life. So in the first half of the stanza, the Psalmist has affirmed his commitment to go to God, as in James 4, 8. Draw near to God. I draw near to God through Scripture and prayer. In the second half of this stanza, he's going to affirm the blessings of going to God. He will draw near to you. Again, James 4, 8. And here are three comforts that come from word and prayer. So thirdly, I want you to notice the psalmist's security in sorrow. Where does he find security in his sorrow? He finds security in the justice of the word. Verse 149, again, he's crying again. He's petitioning, hear my voice according to your loving kindness. Here is the appeal to God's grace, right? Hear my voice according to your loving kindness. That loving word, loving kindness is is a reference to the loyal love of God that once he has covenanted himself to his people, he cannot go back on his love to them. He is loyal and faithful in his love. It's it's grace. It's kindness. And so he says, in essence, would you respond to my petition and my need with the loyalty of your love. He's dependent on God's loyal love. He's dependent on God's grace. He has no right to compel God to act. He has no, no right to ask God to act in particular ways on his behalf. Yet he is well aware that if God acts and when God acts, it will always be out of his loyal love, out of his grace, out of his kindness to him. 
Similarly, friends, we cannot compel God to act. God will not be manipulated by us. We, we cannot force Him to do things for us. He is not obligated to us. But He is inclined to us. His desire is to love and care and give and sustain us. He loves to be gracious to His people. He loves to care for His people. And we, we find this all through the Psalms. Let me, let me give you two. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. It's not just something He does. That's His character. That's His nature. He is identified with compassion and grace. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He Himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. He knows. He knows. He knows you're weak. He knows where you're weak. He made you. And He's compassionate towards you. One other one for the middle of the night. Psalm 116, verse 8. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and He saved me. Return to your rest. O oh, my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. Did you catch that? Verse 7, return to rest, O oh, my soul. He's commanding himself, rest, be at peace. The Lord's got this. He's in control. The Lord is not miserly but abundant, overflowing in His grace giving. Now when He appeals to the Lord for His loving kindness, He has a particular request. We find that in the last part of verse 149. He says, Revive me, O Lord, according to Your ordinances. He, he wants to be preserve, preserved and revived. That means he, he wants to be kept alive or He wants to be given renewal. Watch this. The Lord who gives life also keeps all life and can bring all back to life. He is sovereign over every aspect of our lives. And so the psalmist says, revive me. And he appeals to him as the covenant God, right? Oh, Lord, that's Yahweh, the one who's made promises to the nation of Israel. And in your covenant love, would you would you make me to live? But notice the kind of life he's particularly asking for. He says, revive me, O Lord, according to your ordinances. He's not just speaking about physical life, though the Lord sustains all those things as well. He's talking about spiritual life. Revive me according to your word. Make me to live spiritually according to your ordinances. That word ordinances means your judgments, your evaluations. And so the psalmist is saying, give me spiritual life through your just decrees, through your judgments, through your justice. In other words, I I trust what you say and what you decree. I trust that you will tell me the right thing that I always need to do. Again, remember, he is suffering some kind of injustice that's being imposed on him and against him. And what he wants in that moment is God's justice to guide him in right paths, right ways of living. 
What benefit is found in the scriptures? Oh, nothing much. Just sustaining life for everything that you need to do. His justice, his direction, his judgments, his evaluation. And so the psalmist finds security in the justice of God's word. Fourthly, I want you to notice the psalmist's comfort in sorrow, his comfort in sorrow, and his comfort is the nearness of the word. Verses 150 and 151, he clarifies his problem. People are coming to do harm to him. Those, he says, who follow after wickedness draw near. They're they're not people who just occasionally do some bad things. They're not just people who... Well, they're more or less good people, but just occasionally something happens and they go astray. No, they are sold out to wickedness. They love evil in every aspect of life. They love evil and they have evil hearts. They they pursue evil with diligence. And they're getting close. What does he mean by that? He means that that they're working to conspire against him. They're drawing in. They have their sights set on him. And they are near enough to him to do harm to him. They're about to complete their attack against him. And notice that as they are drawing near to him to do evil, he notes they are far from your law. They are far from obedience to the law. They're uninterested in what God has commanded in the Mosaic law, which I think is what he's referring to with that word law. The the formal decrees of God as they were given to Moses in the first five books of the Old Testament. They, they have no interest in what God has said to do. There's no biblical restraint in their lives. There is little that they wouldn't do in rebellion against God. That's easy to look outside these walls and say, our problem's all out there. But there's a warning here even for us as believers. Notice that the further they get away from God, the closer they get to evil. When we distract ourselves from the Scriptures, it's not just that we are apathetic to God. We are not neutral to God when we disengage with the Scriptures. We are opposed to God when we disengaged and we move further away from Him. The farther we are from taking in, obeying Scripture, the closer we will be to sinful activity. The closer we are to sin, the further we are from Scripture. So here's a a good reminder. The greater the attraction and commission of sin is, the further I am away from Christ and His Word. So, a little self-check. Am I engaging in sin in such a way that it's becoming an increasing delight to me? And whatever the measure of that increase in delight is, you can be sure that you have a corresponding decrease in delight in God. I'm not saying the externals will look any different. We're pretty good at keeping the externals looking just fine. The externals may all look just sweet, wonderful. But internally, as I'm being drawn to sin... I'm being drawn away from Christ. If sin has me, the Bible does not. If the Bible has me, sin will not. You're going to be enslaved, brothers. You'll be enslaved to God, Christ, Scripture, His Word, or you will be enslaved to sin. You will not be enslaved to both. Only one will be your master, And you know how much Christ is your master by evaluating how much sin is your master. So the psalmist looks at the nearness of those who are coming to oppress him. 
But he also notices another thing that is near, another one who is near, verse 151. Those who follow after wickedness are drawn near. You are near, O Lord. They're drawing close. You are close. They appear to be close. You are closer still to me. And notice again, he identifies God as the Lord. This is Yahweh. This is the covenant keeping God. This is faithful God. This is loving God. This is protective God. So whatever it is that's coming in against me and surrounding me, you are inside of that closer to me, protecting me. I am safe in the arms of the protective God. This is not unlike what we said about the Apostle Paul last week. He was comforted that even if he was martyred, God was protecting him. God is keeping him. God will take him home. And then along with the nearness of God, notice he also says in 151, all your commandments are truth. The commandments that God gives in his word are true. They do not fail. They provide guidance and comfort. And so there is a sense in which the psalmist is using these two statements in 151 in parallel. You are near and your commandments are near. They're both truth. They're both near. They're both helpful. They're both comforting. They're both guiding. They're both protecting. And neither will fail. We tend to pursue comfort by attempting to alleviate our problems. In the midst of our trials, we we are tempted to say, I have to have, and fill in the blank. And the psalmist says, all I need is God. I have the Lord. He's closer than my problems. He's always closer than my problems. I have His Word. I have what I need. It's enough. I'm safe. I'm comforted. I want you to notice one more attribute of the psalmist's response in sorrow. I want you to notice his refuge in sorrow. And his refuge is the sufficiency of the word. His refuge is the sufficiency of the word. So today is January 23rd. At the beginning of the year, 23 days ago, 22 days ago perhaps, you started talking about changing some habits. And this is going to be a new year. We're headed on a new trajectory. We're going to do things a new way. Or or maybe you've forgotten a few of those things already. But I want you to notice the long-standing habit of the psalmist. Verse 152. Of old... I have known from your testimonies. Long ago, the psalmist says, I knew and experienced the truth of your testimonies, that is, your decrees, and I have continued to live in them and by them. They are my refuge. This is not something new that I'm just adding on in the middle of my trouble. This is what I've always done. This has always been my go-to. And what was it that he particularly went to Of old I have known from your testimonies, end of the line, that you have founded them forever. The Bible is not a passing fad. It is a permanent decree. It is an eternal, ongoing, perpetual help and guide. Whenever you know what God has said, you have the truth. And that truth has always been true and it will never be anything less than true. Whenever you know what God has said, it's enough to sustain you and keep you. Says one commentator, the testimonies of God may be ancient, founded long ago, but they are not obsolete. They were good for the psalmist. And they are good for you. Where do you go when you have trouble? Where's your refuge? When you have sorrow, where do you run? And what comforts you? I'm not a prophet. 
I don't claim to be a prophet. I do not know what's going to happen this year. But I do know that life will be hard. Our world is not paradise. You will sin this year. Some of you have already got a running start on it. So do I. You will not just sin on January 23rd. You will sin most days between now and December 31. Dare I say every day? You will not only sin, you will be sinned against. You will experience bodily failure. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I know it's coming. You're going to have financial surprises. Relationships will have hard spots. Your job will have hard spots. Your retirement will have hard spots. You will be tempted and you will fail. COVID and other illnesses will not go away. Again, I'm not a prophet, but I don't think it's happening. You will disagree with judicial and governmental decisions. Life is going to be hard in 2022. And what will you do in your hardships? The psalmist tells us, talk to God. Go to Him. Ask Him for help. He hears. He is not deaf to you. He loves to answer you. He is not uncaring. Listen to God. Read His Word. Saturate yourself with this book. Meditate on His Word when you are despondent. This is our hope in all of life. There is nothing else that will sustain us. And then be comforted by Him. Scripture and prayer will remind us of His provision, that He is the only ultimate provision that will comfort us. Friends and spouses, children's parents, co-workers, relatives, church members, pastors, disciples, counselors will all fail you. You don't have to be so emphatic about your pastor failing you, but I get it. Why, why do they fail? Because they're finite, weak, and clay vessels. Jobs financial security and promotions and vacations and new cars and retreats and books and sleep and medication and medical treatments and food and exercise will all fail us because they're not ultimate. Only God is ultimate. All those things are temporal and subject to rust and decay and destruction, but God will never fail because He is infinite and ultimate. He is the end for which... We were created. So go to Him in word and prayer and He will comfort you when you're sorrowing. Father, we thank You for the reminder of this word. Thank You for the faithfulness of this book that we have in our hands. Might we be faithful to it this year. Might we be guided by it this year. And might we be transformed by it this year into the image of our beloved Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.